0: ago, when I was a seminarian, I was assigned at a parish over the summer, and they were going through some renovating. It wasn't this parish, um, it was another parish, and previously they'd had what was called a -a resurrexifix, which is basically Jesus coming off of the cross and reaching out. This is how this one looked, Um, and it was showing that Jesus was resurrected, it was focusing on the resurrection and the joy of the resurrection. Well, they were swapping out the resurrexifix for a traditional crucifix. Actually very intricate, very beautiful, but also very detailed crucifix. It's huge, beautiful crucifix, but also very intense emotionally. You could see the agony on our Lord's face. And I remember talking to one of the longtime parishioners, and they were just kind of lamenting. and said, man, it's sad. I really see, I'm really, I'm really going to miss the resurrexifix. It's hard to see it go and be replaced by something so sad to see our Lord in such pain. Why are we replacing this wonderful image of the resurrection with this terrible blot uh, on our own guilt of the Lord's crucifixion? And as a young seminarian, I was thinking, huh, I hadn't really thought about that. It's a good point. And honestly, I hadn't really thought about it since then until I was preparing for this homily. Uh, And I think it's helpful to maybe um, reflect on what the crucifixion is. The crucifix, because we see it so often and we become very used to it almost desensitized to the violent image of our Lord crucified on a cross. So some quick facts about crucifixion. Crucifixion was a form of torture and execution that was usually reserved for the worst of criminals. Those who were crucified were usually left up even after they had died as a warning to those who had thought about committing similar crimes. Usually something like intense like murder or assassination of someone in government or someone opposing the empire. Now, crucifixion was made popular by the Roman Empire, but it has spread throughout the world in different cultures and in different ways. Different ways of crucifixion. Sometimes the the cross would be a single stake, or it would cross like an X. But the word crucifixion comes from crux, or to cross, two points crossing. And on this, the the person who was executed would either be nailed or tied down. Now, the popular cross that was used for the Roman Empire was the T-Cross, as we see in the crucifixion, as we see in uh, the, um, the crucifix of our Lord. And typically, the person who was going to be crucified was made to carry at least the gibbet, which was the, the horizontal beam that they would be tied to and then eventually nailed to. In some cases, they actually had to carry their whole cross. The gibbet would weigh about like 100 pounds, and the the vertical beam with the gibbet would weigh about 300 pounds, so an immense weight for anyone to carry, especially if you think about it, for our Lord to carry this after having been scourged and tortured overnight before made to walk to Calvary. So again, to really view it with fresh eyes, the crucifixion, and realize the intense violence and the intense shock of the crucifixion, and to ask that question, why? Why, when we enter into the church, is the focal point, the crucifix. Why is it at the center of our faith, even in the sacrifice of the mass? That the sacrifice of the mass points directly to the passion, our Lord's sacrifice, and it is the source and summit of our faith. Why the crucifix? Well, I think it's helpful to explore our Lord really professing his own passion and explaining what it means to be one who follows Christ, what it means to be a Christian. We see this in today's gospel passage. It starts off pretty positive. Jesus is asking his disciples, who are people saying who I am? Some say, uh, you know, John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say the prophets. Elijah's pretty impressive because Elijah was dead. For Elijah to come back, that would be uh, really impressive. But then it's Peter who takes the leap of faith. Peter says, you're the Christ, Jesus. And he doesn't say it like, well, I think you're the Christ or Well, some people say that you're the Christ. He says, no, Jesus, you're the Christ. He's making a statement. He's making a proclamation. He's proclaiming in faith, Lord, I know you to be the Christ. And this is an intense affirmation. This is an incredible thing to say. Because the Jewish people, the Israelites, had been waiting for the Christ, the Savior, for a very, very long time. And for Peter to say this was a really strong testament to his faith in Jesus. And Jesus affirms this. And he says, all right, don't tell anybody. We don't want it to get out. Um, We're not ready for this to get out yet. Uh, And Peter at this point is probably getting a really inflated head. He's like, yeah, right, yeah. I know you're the Christ Jesus. This is awesome. I'm going to be one of your leaders. I'm going to be one of your generals in the army that takes down the Roman Empire and restores the people of God to their rightful place. So he's probably got this intense, like, fire burning in him. And then you can imagine that being deflated (laughs) immediately when Jesus explains what is going to happen exactly how he is going to enter into his glory he says first i'm going to be rejected by my own people by the pharisees by the scribes then i'm going to die and then i'm going to rise on the third day this is contrary you can imagine to what many of his disciples were thinking was going to happen after they heard all right yeah he's the christ he's the christ and then he, they hear this and they think oh well, that doesn't sound right that's not what we were expecting And then Peter, and it's kind of funny, you notice in the gospel, specifically in uh, the gospel of Mark, uh, Peter grabs Jesus and he's, Jesus, come here. He takes him aside, it says. He takes Jesus aside, who he just proclaimed to be the Christ, the Savior of his people. And he takes him aside and he says, Jesus. Uh, And he rebukes him. It says he rebukes him, which is a very strong word. That he harshly rebukes as Jesus, you got it all wrong. Look, I know how this is supposed to go, I'm going to set you straight. And then Jesus is probably thinking, "This, you're supposed to be the rock. You're supposed to be my foundation. Okay. So he does a little uno switch card, and he, <laughs> moves, he reverse rebukes him, and he says, get behind me, Satan. And you can imagine Peter being like, whoa, Satan, whoa. what? Get, me, get behind me, Satan. It's a really powerful statement. One, the statement is to rebuke the, uh, the, the um, temptation that comes along with Peter, saying, hey, Jesus, you don't have to do this. That's the word of temptation, the word of the devil. That's the word of Satan saying, you don't have to do this this way. You can do it however you want. Yeah, the Father desires you to do it this way, but it doesn't matter. The Lord is saying, no, I reject that. Get behind me, Satan. Remove this temptation. But also he's saying, Peter, buddy, you're getting ahead of yourself. Get behind me. You said you want to follow me. I'm the Christ, the Savior. Yeah, it's tough, but this is what it means to follow me. This is what it means to follow the Christ. And then he actually explains this, what this means. And it's interesting because what Jesus is doing is even deeper. It's a deeper level of what he's doing for Peter. Is he's actually exercising him of this pride, of this idea of who he is in our Lord's church, of what he expects to be. Unfortunately, this oftentimes can happen in our own church, where we see leaders in the church, priests, deacons, bishops, cardinals, even popes in our history, and people in the parish where it becomes... Uh, about me. It's like my plans, my ideas, that I'm going to enforce it over what I'm called to by the Lord. The Lord says, no, no, no. That's not going to happen. If you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to bear the name Christian, you have to follow me. And you have to do it this way. And he issues an ultimatum. If you want to follow me, take up your cross. An ultimatum is a final negotiation. It's like this way or the highway. If you were going to follow me, you must take up the cross. And I don't think we take this very seriously. We're used to hearing that. Okay, it's my cross to bear. I take up the cross, blah, blah, blah. But at the time, think about it. We've had thousands of years of this development of the theology of the cross that we're used to, learning it in Bible school, hearing it preached about at masses, seeing the crucifix everywhere as Christians, as Catholics. But for them at the time, they're thinking, Jesus you're telling us to take up a torture device and one of the most excruciating worst ways to die. It's like saying, take up your guillotine and follow me. Take up your hangman's noose and follow me. And this is actually something that really does directly affect us. We may become numb to it, this idea that, oh, take up the cross, that's fine, or, you know, offer up whatever. But no, we need to pay respect to this demand because it's an intense one. And it goes contrary to the world. We live in a world that promotes comfort, a world that promotes, if, there's, if you're not in comfort, if you experience any suffering, there's something wrong with you and there's something wrong with your situation, to abandon any sort of suffering, any kind of adversity in that moment. We're called to deny these temptations, to deny the ways of the world, and to take up our cross as pilgrims of this world, to die to self for the sake of saving ourselves for eternity. And that is what our Lord says That if you save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and for the gospel, then you will gain it. You will save it. And this can be kind of hard to understand because it's a paradox. paradox is two ideas that conflict with each other and they don't seem to make sense. How can I lose my life in order to save it? That doesn't make any sense. And if I save my life, wouldn't I be preserving it? How could I lose it? I think a helpful image for this paradox is actually that of a seed. The Lord uses seeds all the time. He uses the growth of seeds in the field to show many images of faith as a parable. I think it's helpful for this as well to see a seed as being whole and intact. Now, if you plant a seed, that seed will break. It will break and it will grow. But if you don't want it to break, you're going to want to maintain it. You're going to want to keep it dry away from any soil and water. And this can sometimes be our mentality in the world, that I want to protect myself. I don't want to grow, because growing means there might be some pain. There might be some suffering. That I'll have to experience adversity and difficulties. And if I grow my relationship with the Lord, he's calling me to take up the cross. And that will damage my my protection of myself, of how I want to be, of how I want my plans to be. That... If we are to follow Christ, we have to die to self, die to our own plans and intentions and relinquish ourselves to the plans of the Lord, trusting that he will take care of us, trusting that even in the difficulties and the pains of this world and the sufferings of the cross, that we will grow, that we will be assisted by the Holy Spirit, and that ultimately we will gain that eternal life that our Lord speaks of. So I think, again, we have to really pay a lot of respect to what it means to be Christian. What it means to follow christ what it means to take up our cross not in a passive way well okay i'll offer up my sufferings i'll offer it up or you know it's my cross to bear but no i choose it's not something i can do passively i have to actively choose to take up my cross and follow christ it's an active everyday listening to the lord lord what are you calling me today to today and in the midst of suffering in the midst of carrying that cross to know that i am not alone it's interesting. We have this first reading from Isaiah, where Isaiah speaks about his struggles and his sufferings for the Lord. That he is spit at, spit at he is buffeted, he is, has his beard plucked. Um, he's rejected by his own people constantly. He's rejected by the world because he is promoting the Lord's will as a prophet. But what does he say? My stone is set as flint, which is a very powerful image. Saying he's basically saying like I have stone skin. My face is set as stone. That no matter what happens. I know I am with the Lord, that the Lord will protect me, and that I am not alone in this struggle. We also travel this path of the cross, this way of the cross, carrying our crosses together as the body of Christ, that just as the Lord had Simon to support him during the passion, during his long walk to Calvary, so too we have each other to reach out to, to support each other, and to encourage each other in faith and hope. Finally, we're always called to unite our sufferings to the cross. That suffering without the cross, without our Lord, is pointless. The cross without Jesus is just a torture instrument. So I encourage us to really reflect on what it means to carry the cross and how we can unite our sufferings and be empowered by the image of the cross, by the powerful witness of our Lord's passion going forward, so that when we do encounter struggles, when we do encounter discouragement or suffering, that we are not left alone, that we do not give up and just say, you know what, I'm just I'm giving it up. But we actively choose and desire to take up our cross and follow the will of the Lord, whatever that might be. Amen.